Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Hi, and welcome back to the show. I know it's been a while at The New Health Club, but we come back with a new concept. So I hope you're doing well and I would like to give you a quick update on the podcast. From now on, we will come to you on a monthly basis. And of course, we will bring you the most interesting, fascinating and relevant people in the psychedelic industry and in the psychedelic field. But we will also focus on a new direction of the New Health Club. And we ask yourself how to bring psychedelics to your workplace to support a new idea of C-level coaching. We also think about how to offer these treatments as a benefit for your employees in the future. So there's more to come on this topic very soon. But now over to my really fabulous guest today. My guest on the show today is finally Julie Holland. To me, one of the most important voices in the psychedelic field. Holland is an American psychopharmacologist, psychiatrist, and author. She's the author of five books, actually, including Moody Bitches and Good Chemistry, my favorites. But also Weekends at Bellevue, Nine Years at a Night Shift at the Psych ER, a memoir documenting Julie's experiences as the weekend head of psychiatric emergency room at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. Julie is an advocate for the appropriate use of consciousness expanding substances as a part of mental health treatment. She's a medical monitor for MAP studies, which involve in part developing psychedelics into prescription medication. Holland sits on a few advisory boards, for example, the one from Palo Santo. And to me, she's one of the most inspiring people in the space. What I like about Julie? She's non-judgmental. She's always sees the bigger picture in the psychedelic renaissance. And she's a lot of fun to talk to. Actually, a dream scenario. So please enjoy Julie Holland and the New Hot Club Show. So Julie Holland, could you say Dr. Julie Holland? Like in Europe, you would say MD or would you just say Dr. Julie Holland? Well, if you're you. my grandfather, you did both, Dr. Julie Holland, MD, just to make sure you get it on both sides. He was what we like to call a belt and suspenders man. Um, the the MD is important to me. I like being called doctor. I like pe people knowing that I'm a medical doctor. So Yeah, and I mean, your books uh, that we talk about later are written from a medical but very empathic perspective, which makes them so unique, I think. But I think it's it's great to say that you're a doctor because... 
in this world of psychedelics, it's kind of sometimes not really very visible when somebody is a doctor. So that's why I think it's, it's fascinating to me that you are already for a while. It's true all that in the psychedelic community, there are fewer MDs than there are sort of other people. Um, it's a large community. Yeah. And even in the psychedelic research community, you're going to find more PhDs than MDs. And so what that really translates into is that not everybody has practical information. You know, not everybody is sort of out there treating patients as a psychiatrist, knowing what the needs are and what the potential solutions are. So uh, there are more and more medical doctors coming up behind me who are interested in what I am. And I'm really eager for them to get set up because uh, I need there to be more of me out here doing what I'm doing. You could say your position at the moment is kind of very unique, I would say, like because you have already a big knowledge about psychedelic assisted therapies. In your books, you write a lot about chemical composition of substances. So, But I would like to start with the question. It's a very interesting and very maybe also difficult moment in psychedelics right now in this whole thing that happened in the last two years since most people have founded their companies, their funds, their podcasts, including myself. So how is your perception right now of this whole industry or let's say ecosystem at this point where we are right now? You know, I sort of think of it as like the adolescence, that it, it is a phase that we have to go through and it's not very attractive and that's a little bit awkward. And, you know, just like in uh, development in the, of the brain in adolescence, there is a tremendous explosion of connections and growth. And then what has to happen at some point toward the end of adolescence is we have to do what's called pruning, where the brain makes some hard decisions about what it's going to keep and what it's going to get rid of for the overall benefit, you know, of the structure. And so I really feel like that's sort of happening in the psychedelic community. There's a lot of growth. There's sort of exponential explosive growth with new companies and new ideas and new chemical entities. And there's going to have to be a bit of a reckoning, you know, not there's, it's a big space. It may be big enough for everybody, but more likely... It's going to be a little of survival of the fittest to see who makes it to the next stage. And this idea of pruning or scaling back, it's not pretty. It's not, uh, you know, if you've ever done any kind of real gardening or fruit trees, you have to cut them back so they're hideous. But then the next year they blossom like crazy and you get more fruit than ever. So I feel like we are in sort of an awkward pruning phase where it's really important that we nip some of these problems in the bud, that we see that some things are going off in a bad direction and that everybody needs to sort of call these behaviors out so that we can have a really strong foundation moving forward. Mm -hmm. And what do you think right now is the biggest conflict? Because there's a lot of, like you say, there's a lot of innovation, a lot of money, but also problems coming out of this financing world. I don't think I can narrow it down to one, but I think I can narrow it down to sort of two areas that are very large, but maybe are a good umbrella. And I'd say one of those areas is maybe just capitalism versus Uh, communalism, you know, this idea of everybody sort of going it for themselves and following the traditional capitalism model of intellectual property and anti-competitive behavior. So that's a whole area of concern. So for me, the eyes on the prize is sort of equitable access that the people who need this medicine can get this medicine. And the flip side of that, what's going to get in the way is the greed. And then the other issue, besides the sort of capitalism issue, is sort of a little bit of a patriarchy issue, but it may be bigger than that. But it's just this uh, sort of 
you know, what used to be called man's inhumanity to man is that some people are just going to behave badly. And that is the reality of people. Um, I have a, a stupid tautology that I say sometimes, which is like, people are going to people. Not everyone is going to be a, a good actor. Not everyone's going to be a bad actor. But one of the things I worry about in the psychedelic space are the bad actors. It's very common in therapy for there to be interpersonal trauma you know, boundary violations and transgressions that are particularly sort of egregious when there's a power structure. And so these are things that we really have to watch for also within psychedelic assisted therapy is that there are going to be inevitably because people are going to people, there's going to be uh, interpersonal trauma, boundary transgressions, sexual violations. So we really have to be hyper vigilant, let's say about these transgressions and about this potential trauma and don't pretend it can't happen. We all know instances of it already happening. And so that's one of the things that I worry about, totally separate from corporate greed and, you know, uh, malignant sort of corporate practices, completely different, but still a malignant behavior that needs to be addressed. But you just already mentioned the boundary question. I think a couple of weeks ago, there was this New York Times podcast, Power Trip. Yeah about um, this, I think, a woman who talked about her story in a psychedelic therapy slash, yeah, you know what I mean? Like this, so this podcast is important. These things are important. There have been transgressions. They need to be aired. We need to be educated about these things that can happen. And, you know, a few years ago, I'd be like, let's not sensationalize these things. Let's just talk about these things. But, you know, the way social media works is everything gets sensationalized and everything sort of turns into clickbait. But this is something real that has to be explored. And anybody who is willing to get the conversation started, I applaud. People need to talk about this. So I think that podcast is important. Um, what Lily Ross is doing is important. She has a personal story to tell and she can shed light on other people's stories. It's really hard to come forward. If anybody is willing to be a repository of stories, Catherine McLean is another one who has organized sort of a consortium of people to accept these stories and to work with women who have been transgressed against. It's mostly women. It's not just women. You know, I mean, one of the sort of big secrets in psychiatry and therapy is that men can be victims also. So far, the sort of more salacious stories that we have all been hearing about with what I jokingly refer to as shamans behaving badly, it's mostly around this issue of male clinicians and female uh, clients. And by the way, I uh, obviously there's plenty of people here who do not identify as either gender, and there's a huge place in the psychedelic community for people who are gender fluid. Um, but I am just talking in, you know, statistically that that has been the most commonly reported episodes of transgression is a, a male clinician and a female client. Yeah. And I mean, I think, um, especially also here in Europe, the stories I heard from, let's say, more a Berlin context or a German or European context is it's often that a guy has done ayahuasca maybe a couple of times. And after three times ayahuasca, he, he is under the impression he could be a shaman. Yeah. And help the whole world <laughs> that, yeah. with his, with his uh, self-consciousness, you could say. So, and then he goes out there and opens illegal retreats and um, leaves his job and um, other guys follow his 
I mean, Instagram is full of these kind of examples of mainly guys who think after three experiences, they could turn other people into, I don't know how they, how they actually would describe it. So why is this so popular? <laughs> What's funny is that psychedelics as a group are really supposed to tamp down the ego. Yeah. And allow ego dissolution. And and the joke is sort of, you know, if these medicines are so good at quieting the ego, why do we have so many egomaniacs coming into the space? Yeah, that's with the, that's a lot a of question. narcissism dictating their behavior. And it's a it's a fair question. And I think, you know, I don't know that I can answer the why, but I can say that one of the things that needs to happen and is happening is that there will be a governing body who can decide Who should be certified? Who shouldn't be certified? Um, you know, who's had enough training that they can be a guide or a clinician? And it may be that there'll be several levels of what sorts of guides. You know, you need you, at some point you need some sort of medical doctor or medical uh, supervision. Although obviously this can be argued against because traditionally these medicines are used not in a medical context. Um, but for the purposes of our discussion, especially for the purposes of sort of harm minimization. You need some sort of governing body that decides whether people are certified enough to do what they're doing. And then also some sort of consequences or repercussions for people who are transgressing these boundaries. You know, are they going to be punished or, you know, they won't be able to do what they're doing. Um, their certification will be taken away if they ever had any. But one of the nice things that's happening is there's more and more training opportunities, whether online or in person, to get the proper certification and courses under your belt so that you can be um, some sort of licensed uh, psychedelic practitioner so that you can get whatever um, certification is required to sit with people. You know, there is going to be a tremendous need and request for sitters. Yeah, I mean, that's the main question that everybody's looking into, right, I guess. So you still have your practice, right? You you have a regular psychiatry therapy practice. So I do. Somebody reads in one of these 500 New York Times articles, oh, I can <laughs> do now, <laughs> I can actually look into psychedelics as therapy. So, and then comes to your office and um, how does this work? So how do you talk to people who directly ask you for this? Right. Well, you know, the first step is to really educate people about what the current legal status is. You know, as much as you're hearing hype about this, All of these things are currently illegal in the United States of America, uh, except for ketamine. Although a big asterisk here is that there are cities and municipalities and states which are changing the rules about psychedelics and deprioritizing criminalization. You know, Oregon in 2020, which is a state in the Northwest in the United States, um, they've legalized psychedelics in licensed supervised facilities through treatment, but the treatment can't take place until 2023 because they have to work out all the regulations and how they're going to do it. But there's an increasing number of cities that are decriminalizing mushrooms and other plant medicines like Washington, D.C., Seattle, Detroit, Berkeley, California, um, even um, Somerville, Massachusetts, which is uh, near where I grew up. So and then you've, you've got legislature in Texas and Connecticut. You know, people are starting to deprioritize the criminalization of it. But the bottom line is federally in the United States of America, cannabis, LSD, psilocybin, ayahuasca, ibogaine, 
DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, all these things are Schedule One drugs. They're totally illegal. So the first conversation that I have with people who come to my office with these questions is, if you don't want to break the law, we really only should be talking about ketamine. And, you know, say what you will about ketamine, and there are plenty of things that make it less desirable than some of these other medicines we're talking about. But you don't have to break the law. You don't have to play these cat and mouse games trying to find an underground practitioner. And maybe most importantly, for my context, you don't have to get off your meds. You know, a lot of people in this country are medicated. You know, psychopharmacology industry, big pharma, as they say, they've done really well in America. And over the past 20, 30 years, lots and lots of people are on antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds, stimulants for ADD. So one of the things that has to happen if you don't want to work with ketamine is you may have to get off a couple of your medicines in order to do work with these other compounds. And by the way, these compounds are illegal. So very tricky right now, the landscape. And getting off meds, which we could spend an hour talking about this, but just take my word for it. Getting off psychiatric medicines is very complicated and is typically best done slowly with a gradual taper. And that means that you need somebody helping you with this. But what you want is to do something illegal. Who's going to help you get off your meds or stay with you when you're off your meds? So sometimes people get off their meds, they do underground work, and then they're really sort of left where if they don't have good integration and follow-up and support, now there's somebody who's off their meds, which is always a vulnerable place. Plus, maybe they've discovered some new traumas with the underground therapy they work, so they're in a hyper-vulnerable place. So it's potentially a little bit of a recipe for disaster. You know, in a perfect world, you want to do what the research does, which is that you aggressively screen people and then thoroughly educate them. And then you're with them every step of the way, not just during the therapy, but really important that afterwards you're still with them to integrate. What did you figure out? What did you learn? What do you want to do with this information? You know, how do you want to sort of walk the talk and where does the rubber meet the road and other ridiculous metaphors? But this whole integration phase <laughs> is really, really important. But I mean, isn't it also that now that you say this, that... Um Let's say, because I also know some people getting off medication, trying this and then getting into other variations. So isn't this often that then the real trauma shows itself while you're on medication? It often doesn't even show right. or like in therapy. Right. I mean, I had 15 years of talk therapy where the main thing I'm kind of talking, like thinking about and working on has never come up. Right. So, and then suddenly you have this weight, there's a whole new set of things you have to work around. Isn't that, isn't that often the case? Yeah. That this happens? It is often the case that you can be in therapy or more often just not in therapy, going through your life, not knowing, not really being in touch with the trauma. And most of the psychedelic assisted therapies are going to get you more in touch with your trauma. So you really need to be in a safe space physically and psychologically to start to process that. And you're not going to finish processing it in one day. Yeah. You know, you're going to need months of therapy to integrate and process what you figured out during a, you know, three or four hour psychedelic assisted therapy session. So it's really a longer process, I think, than people understand. Um, and also, at least with the MDMA research, there's repeated sessions. You know, there's two or three, depending on which protocol you're looking at, MDMA assisted therapy sessions that are sort of flanked by a lot of pre and post work, yeah. you know, getting ready for the session and then all the integration after the session. And you do two or three rounds of that whole process. So it's not a quick one and done. 
And it's not a miracle drug. It's definitely not for everyone. I think, you know, there probably isn't enough attention really being paid to who shouldn't do this. You know, who is not in a good position to do this? And depending on who you talk to, that can be a shorter or longer list. I think it's fair to say that people who have chronic psychotic illnesses, you know, people with schizophrenia or people with bipolar one disorder where they have manic episodes or depressed episodes with psychosis, at least for now, People that have a history of psychosis are being screened out of all the MDMA and psilocybin LSD protocols. And there may come a time when it makes sense to actually work with those patient populations, but they are more vulnerable than the average patient population. And the truth is, all of us are vulnerable, I think, when it comes to this kind of work. And also with this added vulnerability of being destabilized if you have to come off your medicines in order to do this work. I think one of the things that makes microdosing very appealing is that you can just add it on to whatever you're already taking. And the same thing with ketamine. And for the most part, you don't have to stop your medicines in order to have a ketamine experience. So if somebody's on a lot of medicines, that may be the way to start is with either one of those where you don't have to change too many things. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think that's what a lot of people are getting more and more interested in. But but it's also, I find that once you engage in higher macrodoses, <laughs> I mean, for example, like a psilocybin macrodose I had in, in the Netherlands. I mean, I think it's interesting not only that your main trauma might show up, but also that there will be maybe severe life changes coming after this. For example, me leaving, being Catholic, um, converting to Judaism came out of this. So completely not really unexpected if I think about it, but it is obviously something that will transform my life at one point. Definitely. There's all these different words I've been thinking about instead of psychedelic. Um, I don't have a problem with the word psychedelic, but you know, one of the words is like transformational medicine is that people do make tremendous changes in their behavior after psychedelic assisted therapy. And there's a possibility for like post-traumatic growth. You know, the other way I've been thinking about this is it's almost like interventional psychiatry. Mm -hmm. You know, there are certain procedures like interventional radiology where they can actually have a huge impact in behavior by making an intervention. And the intervention's a little bit risky, but if you do it well, the patient's going to have a tremendously different quality of life on the outside. And so we could start thinking about that there's like a branch of psychiatry that's, you know, more interventional, that's really sort of aggressively getting in there and trying to make a difference instead of, you know, most of psychiatry is just a daily dose of medicines, you know, and the daily dose is, you know, sort of more like a Band-Aid than really fixing the problem. It's more like a splint than surgery, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes uh, instead of having a splint forever, you really want to go in and do the work to make the bone stronger. So, yeah. um, yes, people can transform and people do transform. But the other issue that I think is worth talking about is this sort of terrible letdown if you're expecting your session to be transformational and it's not. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a very you're interesting expecting point. To, yeah. to dig up some trauma. It doesn't really happen or, you know, or anything, you know, you wanted a mystical experience and it didn't happen. You wanted ego disintegration. It didn't happen. Or for some people, they don't trip. I'm sorry to use the vernacular, but I hear from underground therapists that they've given people twice as much, three times as much as like what usually would mm-hmm. occasion a mystical experience. And the person, it's not even that they're not having a mystical experience or they're not having ego dissolution. They're not feeling it whatsoever. And that's pretty confusing. And so 
sometimes there's like real disappointment, you know, that I didn't get it. It didn't work for me. And, and also maybe this is the last thing, you know, I tried everything else and, you know, this was like my final hope. I thought it was going to work. So again, the need for, for a holding environment and integration and working with somebody on, you know, after the experience to process everything that came up or didn't come up. Yeah. I actually know two people who went exactly into something like that and were like, okay, I think I have to go back. It wasn't enough. What happened? I thought I would see this. I saw, I thought I would solve this question. So yeah, yeah, that's true. Let's talk about your book. Um, first of all, about moody bitches, which is obviously a very okay. good title. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think everybody wants to read it <laughs> immediately. Well, you know, what's funny about moody bitches is that it's true that the publishers and the editors and the people that I worked with when I was sort of pitching it Everybody loved the title. It's hysterical. Don't change it. But when the book actually got published, it didn't really sell very well. And oh, we really okay. were going to change the title for the paperback. And then in the end, we just sort of chickened out and didn't. Um, but it turns out that not everybody realizes that I have a sense of humor and this is supposed to be funny. The subtitle of Moody Bitches is um, the truth about the drugs you're taking, the sleep you're missing, the sex, sex you're not having, having, and what's yeah. really making you crazy or really yeah. making you yeah. feel crazy. Yeah. You know, and and really what Moody Bitches is about, besides this idea that women are over pathologized, over medicated, that we have come to look at emotions and our own hormonal fluidity as pathology. You know, so we're really like medicating away women's emotions and medicating away our natural cyclicity and how we feel about things over the course of a menstrual cycle. Um, but then, you know, the part about what's really making you crazy was about how disconnected we are from ourselves, from our communities, from the planet, from the cosmos. It's about this sort of epidemic of disconnection and isolation that was happening back when I wrote Moody Bitches. And then also good chemistry, same thing, before yeah. COVID, talking about how isolated and disconnected we are and how that's really feeding a lot of the pathology, not just in psychiatry, but just in regular medicine, you know, people drinking themselves to death or eating themselves to death and just not taking care of themselves. It all comes back to this being disconnected, being isolated as causing a tremendous amount of pathology. And so good chemistry sort of picked up where Moody Bitches left off, where I went more deeply into this epidemic of disconnection. And then, you know, when the book came out, it was COVID and it was like, oh, you think you were isolated before? <laughs> like, now get welcome, this. You know, this is a whole other level. Yeah, but that's, I mean, before we quickly jump back to Moody Bitches, that's where you're just mentioning it. I mean, and what level do you think this whole, let's say, disconnection crisis will become worse? Um, or, I mean, it already is, but let's say even after... I mean, some people say now it's peaking with Omicron and then by the end of the year, it's not going to be that bad anymore. You have the medication ready. So, but then again, you have this PTSD mathematics that means yeah. it's going to come later anyway. Right. I mean, th there's a few things I would like to say about that. First of all, this is the only time that we have all been traumatized together as a planet yeah. and we all know about it, right? Maybe there were other global pandemics, but we didn't have the internet. So now we're all going through something. Every single one of us on this floating rock in space, we're all going through something and that's really never happened before, you know, that we're in touch with everyone's trauma and our own trauma. So I do think there's going to be significant PTSD after COVID and It's not over, you know, and the isolation and disconnection was already pretty much at epidemic proportions medically 
before COVID. So we're all going to get a real lesson. And the human species, we're categorized as obligatorily gregarious. We only survive if we're communal and social. We have to be social to survive. And we're wired to get tremendous pleasure from being connected and social and to get tremendous displeasure from being ostracized and, you know, betrayed and all of those things. So we're really hardwired to be hit hard by something that makes us isolate. And this whole fear of contagion is a trauma, you know, and the way that we respond to that kind of fear of contagion is that we really shut down and isolate. So, but what's happening now is that we're all sort of bonding with our phones and our laptops because, you know, more than ever, I mean, we were all sort of worried about how much time we were spending on our devices. And then COVID came and it was like, screw it. We're on our devices. That's just the way it's going to be. You know, we've all sort of rolled over to being much more jacked in than ever before to our devices. And, you know, I spent a lot of time writing in Moody Bitches and Good Chemistry about what the potential negative consequences are of being so jacked into your devices. And now you have to like multiply that by 10 because <laughs> that's all just what we're all doing. Yeah. And um, like you say, it's even harder to just really put it away and not in the morning. The first thing it's that what new variant is there? What new vaccination <laughs> should I get? Kind of. So it's like something that you think about 24 hours now in a strange way. Yeah. I mean, My patients who will admit it, you know, we are all sort of talking about how much more we're allowing ourselves to be soothed by our laptops and by our phones and by just sort of escaping into these other worlds. And, you know, you can see like uh, the companies like, you know, Netflix or Amazon, like, you know, content, everyone is just creating more and more content because we're all devouring all this content, you know, weird time in human history. It's a really interesting time to be a psychiatrist, I'll tell you. Between psychedelics and COVID, so many people realize that they need to talk to a therapist or need to go on meds or talk to a psychiatrist. So, um, you know, between psychedelics and all the sort of disconnection we're all going through, I'm very busy. (laughs) You will be for the next 50 years, I guess. I've got job security, so I suppose that's something. (laughs) I mean, anybody listening, I would really encourage you that if you have any inkling at all, in being a social worker or a therapist or somebody who sits and guides people in psychedelic therapy, like to go and get your training, go to school, sign up for programs online, get certified because there will be a tremendous need for you. Oh, absolutely. But just quickly come back to the Moody Bitches book, because I think I read this first and then afterwards I read The Body Keeps the Score, like how basically your traumatic experience is ingrained in your regular health problems that we never really looked at as like it's just a normal disease like everybody has it i mean like somebody like you is basically already representing a model of a let's say doctor for now that will also look into eventual traumas that a person had in a time when they even wouldn't remember these traumatized experiences that eventually really affected their regular health and the so-called classic, you know, diseases like circulation problems, heart problems that are like the Western world kind of has accepted these that everybody basically will get this at a certain yeah. age. So how do you think that psychedelics will change medicine beyond mental health? 
you know, the way I sort of look at it is it's a little bit like software and hardware, you know, and they both inform how the computer is going to work. And I do think that psychedelics are going to make it clear to more people how not only is a biological basis to behavior, but there is a real psychological and spiritual basis to medical health that how you are in your body and how your body is functioning has a lot to do with where you are at mentally, spiritually, emotionally, um, and also socially, right? I mean, both Moody Bitches and Good Chemistry, I talk a lot about what is the impact on your body if you are not socially secure? And it's really a significant trauma and stressor. So in a way that, let's say, if you wouldn't have enough social interactions, communities that will actually directly affect your your health, right? You know, one of the psychedelic studies, they really looked at, okay, for the people who didn't get better, because a lot of people with the psilocybin treatment, Imperial in the UK did a study where they gave uh, psilocybin-assisted therapy to people with very significant depression. A lot of people got better, but a lot of people didn't. And when they looked at the people who didn't get better, it really had to do with the social network that they were being discharged back into, you know, that even if you have sort of a holding environment, you know, with the psychedelic therapist, with doing the research, at some point you're getting discharged back out into your regular life. And if your regular life is, you know, not well constructed to support you or your regular life is traumatizing, you're not going to be able to really capitalize on the gains that you got from the therapy. So, you know, there are social determinants of mental health and there are social determinants of physical health. And I would argue that those things are one and the same. And there's this whole issue really of racial trauma too. Yeah, yeah. That mm-hmm. just, depending on where you live, if you are a marginalized person there, you are being psychologically traumatized, which is going to have some impact on how your body functions. You know, anytime you're in fight or flight, when you get traumatized, you're in the sympathetic nervous system, you're in fight or flight. And like, it's not healthy for your body to be in the sympathetic state. You know, when I was in medical school and even high school, you know, everybody, when they would teach fight or flight, they would explain like, this is the key to survival. And it may be that attacking or evading is a key to survival 5% of your life if you're being, you know, chased by a wild boar. But 95% of your life, what's key to your survival is maintaining a social structure so that you can get help with getting food or building your shelter, you know, so you will not have good social skills if you are in fight or flight. You have to be in the flip side, which is called the parasympathetic, not only to have good social repair, but bodily repair. Your body is running on empty when it's in fight or flight. Adrenaline, cortisol, terrible for your body long term. If you're in the flip side of sympathetic, which is called parasympathetic, it's not adrenaline and cortisol, it's oxytocin. Oxytocin helps to solidify social bonds. It also helps with wound healing and the body's ability to repair itself. Your body does not run any repair protocols when you're in fight or flight. All the repair and fixing only happens in parasympathetic. That's when you can sleep 
That's when you can digest your food. That's when you can have sex. And when you're in fight or flight and you're stressed or you're traumatized or you're disconnected from yourself or other people, you don't sleep well, you don't digest your food well, you get ulcers and other GI issues I don't want to go into, but you can imagine. Um, So it's insomnia. And the parasympathetic is rest, digest, repair. And it's also where all the social skills and social repair comes in. Terrible social skills in fight or flight. Your body can't fix itself in fight or flight. You can't sleep. You can't eat. You're a mess. And all of us, because we're all traumatized, we're more in fight or flight than ever. You know, we're getting fat and we don't sleep well and we're miserable and our immune systems don't work as well. So we have a lot of reasons to really pay attention to how we're living, how much disconnection is screwing up our very basic metabolism of how the machine runs. Yeah, I mean, what you just described, I think it's the feeling of 2020. (laughs) That people (laughs) really just, uh, you could work out as much as you wanted in front of Zoom, but nothing would change or hardly anything because the stress level was super high, I guess, right? Yeah. Cortisol cortisol makes it hard to have a flat belly. Yeah. (laughs) For starters. I know that. Right? (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Yeah. Hormones, you know, our hormones have a lot to do with fat deposition and where things get deposited. Um, And, you know, the more cortisol you have, the more likely you are to have to have belly fat. Mm. Yeah, it's a weird thing. In Good Chemistry, you also talk a little bit about your own personal story, how you had this one weird event as a teenager. And then this kind of suddenly excluded you from a group of people that you used to hang out with and suddenly you were in the the outlaw group. And um, I thought that's such an interesting example, I think, because that happens to basically a lot of people It does in their teenagers, but nobody would ever really talk about it, maybe like rather now, like later in life. So if you're up for it, it would be great to talk about it. What do you think happened to you and how, how it affected your life now. Part of why I sort of unearthed it was I was making an outline for a memoir about my drug experiences, basically, and when they started and what sort of things I figured out. And when, when I really looked at when things started, it was pretty much right after I got ostracized from the in crowd, from my friend group. It was incredibly painful socially for me what happened. I was in the in crowd, you know, had tons of friends, was super popular, started hanging out a lot with one other girl in the in crowd. And then we got accused of being gay. And uh, I had a boyfriend, so they called me bi, bisexual, which, Mm -hmm. you know, back in eighth grade, this is in like, you know, the 70s, right? So being bisexual back then, no cachet, you know, not okay. (laughs) So, uh, and also, uh, I was definitely a tomboy. I was a pretty butch woman, but I was definitely heterosexual. Um, so the next year I ended up that my new friends were sort of the druggies. And I, I had all sorts of really interesting experimental drug experiences. And I sort of joked that I was a drug researcher from a young age. Like I was always taking notes. I was fascinated by how these things work and how much I took and how long it lasted and things like that. You know, I just, um, I was very experimental. And The other thing that happened to me, and I don't know if I really talked about it in Good Chemistry or not, but um, I've come to think of it a little bit as my origin story, although I think that the ostracism can be part of the origin story. But when I was about 
15 in an attempt to experience mescaline, I inadvertently experienced PCP. Um, And it was pretty intense. And I got to see what it was like to really feel psychotic and what a lot of uh, psychotic phenomenon feel like because I went through them. And um, it got me very interested in psychosis. It really was one of the main reasons I think I ended up being a psychiatrist. But also it got me very interested in harm reduction. And this idea that if you're trying to try a drug, you should be able to get the drug you want to try. You know, I mean, on some level, I was like, this isn't fair. I wanted a psychedelic. I was curious about mescaline. And here I was having something that is not a psychedelic, you know, that wasn't what I wanted. And why was that? So I just became very interested in this idea of harm reduction and counterfeit drugs and drug testing and things like that from a pretty young age, uh, before anybody was really talking about drug testing. So I have to say, you know, as a 56-year-old woman now who's been sort of interested in the same things for 30-something years, it's incredibly gratifying that some of the things that I was sure, this is wrong and this shouldn't be that way. You know, now a lot of other people think that way too. And it's lovely. I mean, when I was an undergrad, I wrote this paper about how we were just starting to learn about HIV. And I was saying, you know, we need to give clean needles to people. We need to make condoms readily available. And like, these weren't things that were happening then. Yeah. And then like in the early nineties, I was very interested. I wanted to do MDMA research, but the people where I was were like, that's not going to happen here. But now, you know, 20 something years later, oh, we're building a psychedelic research center, we're doing MDMA research here. And it's just like, you know, if anybody had bothered to like take me seriously in the 80s or the 90s, we could have been doing this earlier. And maybe, you know, maybe if I were a man instead of a woman, I would have been met with a different, maybe, maybe, who knows? You know, I was pretty, tried to be pretty convincing. I was talking to somebody about it and he's like, oh, it's sort of like when you think this band is amazing and then finally 10 years later, everybody's like, oh my God, this band's amazing. And you're like, yeah, I know. You know, it's a little bit like that. We're like, you know, I've been saying the same thing for so long and it is really gratifying that now there are psychedelic research centers cropping up everywhere. And, you know, everyone is sort of asking me what I think about like this idea or that idea. And I like being in this position now. It's much better than, you know, me getting sort of turned away and people just not getting what I was selling. Yeah. But I mean, you also wrote this book about working in the psychiatry. So um, yeah, the psychiatric emergency room at at Bellevue Hospital. Yeah, in New York. That was in the 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. So I worked... I had a job running the psychiatric emergency room at Bellevue Hospital from 96 to 2005. So it was nine years. Uh, So for nine years, two 15 to 16 hour shifts every week. It was great. It was a great, great job. I had a lot of time off to do other things, which was very, very helpful for me because it was a little bit like childbirth where you just kind of like forget the pain. And by next Saturday afternoon, I was ready to go to work. But by Monday morning, I was just completely fried. It was a good cycle for me. And I I was at that job for longer than most people keep that job. And I, uh, while I was working there, people would be like, oh, you should write a book. You know, whenever I told people what I did, oh, wow, I would read that book. You should write a book. And so I finally, after I left Bellevue, I did write a book about my time there. And I love that book, Weekends at Bellevue. It's really, it's probably my favorite of my five books. But what actually 
exactly did you do? How would you explain it? There's a whole process. You know, when you come into Bellevue, they start you in the medical ER and figure out if you have a medical problem or a psychiatric problem. And if you have both and the medical problem is really significant, they'll start in the med ER. But if it's mostly psychiatric, they send you down to the psychiatric emergency room. And there, there's a whole process. First, you talk to the nurse And then you talk to a doctor and then uh, we try to figure out what's going on with you and what we can do for you. And we can either admit you to the inpatient wards upstairs or we can admit you to the ER where you could stay overnight for one or two nights, you know, maybe a total of three days so we can really figure out what's wrong with you. And then after those three days, we either send you out or up to the floors. And then some people would come in and go out, you know, on the same day or just stay overnight one day. But we, it's really triage, you know, what does this person need? What are the issues? Can we fix them with a hospitalization or is it not really bad and they can go out into the world? So it was a lot of like, am I going to take away this person's civil liberties and commit them? Or am I going to release them back out in the street? And, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. Very hard to know what people are going to do. But the job description was a lot of risk assessment. Everybody's got a different sort of tolerance for risk. You know, I think one of the reasons why I loved my time at Bellevue is because I am neither risk averse nor novelty averse. I like novelty. I like risk. And that the ER was chronic novelty. Every patient had their own particular set of circumstances. How would you say, I mean, that's still kind of a picture that a lot of people have from psychiatry, like how this will look like. I mean, like, of course, a lot of people still think of one flew over the cuckoo nest, like how everybody's in white and like Napoleon yeah. secretly. I like that you're asking how it would look because I, you know, yeah. one of the things I was trying to sort of pitch, I'm putting my fingers up in air quotes now, yeah. um, was a TV show called Weekends at Bellevue so that I could give people like a visual of just how it looks and how these people look. And um, we actually did make a pilot. There was mm -hmm. an $8 million dollar pilot shot oh, wow. of Weekends at Bellevue and they did a pretty good job. They actually got people off the street who were sort of homeless, mentally ill people and paid them to be extras and a couple of scenes. And it was really good casting. And the pilot, I thought, was pretty fascinating, but it didn't get picked up. You know, this idea of what does it look like and what really happens? I think you're not the only one who wants to know that. I think a lot of people want to see how it was done, you know, and you could tell a lot of really heartwarming stories. Um, and then also the whole part of Weekends at Bellevue wasn't just the patients. I mean, I really tried to teach people about psychiatric disorders and meds and, and how we evaluate people and all that. But also I wanted to give them a glimpse into the, the background, how the doctors treat each other, how the doctors treat the nurses, how, the, you know, just like all of the sort of staffing issues and a little bit of backstabbing and betrayal and things that typically happen in any hierarchical structure. Um, yeah. There's a lot there. But how would you say the depression looked back then compared to now? I mean, it's a kind of a weird question, maybe, but it's a total journalist question. But again, if you look at movies or if you watch movies from that time, um, so depression seems or people that are depressed, they always have a very specific look. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, they have a crazy look in their face. They're homeless stuff. And today it's like, I mean, even in Gossip Girl, there are depressed characters. 
it's in a different mainstream now, I think. It's funny. I mean, you know, anxiety in particular has really come into its own. Where yeah, it's oh, gotten yeah. like much very, better, very more common for yeah. people to say that they're anxious or to say that they have an anxiety disorder. Yeah. And I do think that there's something sort of generationally, right? Where like the generation above me and two generations above me, nobody would ever admit to having any psychiatric problem whatsoever. It was such a secret, you know, people yeah. would get sort of shunned away or admitted to a hospital, but nobody would be honest about it. And now it's gotten to the point where it's like a, you know, a badge of honor to say that you have a therapist or you're taking medicines or that you have some sort of a diagnosis. It's really been a huge pendulum swing. But then the other issue is that all the things that cause mental illness are unfortunately in the last two or three years getting much worse, not better. So we really are gearing up for a mental health crisis um, definitely in the country where I am sitting right now, the United States of America has really inept healthcare delivery system. And there are huge swaths of the country where there are no therapists or no psychiatrists at all. And at least now you can get on your laptop and have like a virtual session with somebody. But, you know, all the psychiatric diagnoses like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia or attention deficit disorder or like depression, anorexia, alcoholism, drug addiction, all these things are still very much happening a lot. But now they're happening even more because of COVID and because of the isolation and the trauma and the fear of contagion and the misinformation and the confusion. And I thought the adults were in charge and they were going to take care of us. And now I realize no one's going to take care of us. And then you add in all the existential angst and despair and anxiety about climate change, about the refugee crisis. I mean, you know, there are just so many things that are big and beyond our control and bad um, that are weighing on a lot of us. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of like that bumper sticker, you know, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And there's a lot attention. going on. Mm -hmm. You know, the social determinants of mental health uh, are not sort of stacked in our favor at the moment at all. So, you know, things are worse here. I think they're worse in a lot of countries. It was yeah, a mental course. health yeah, crisis. Yeah. I mean, so my point is that there was a mental health crisis before COVID. So obviously there's an yeah. even bigger, yeah. more terrible mental health crisis now. So I, I feel also that all these kind of um, Instagram posts have disappeared where people would just write like, um, oh, just love yourself enough. And then <laughs> it's perfect. Um, bake some cupcakes for yourself. So. <laughs> right. So what have you got for like the big leagues? Because it's it's not, you know, exactly. all that sort of relentlessly positive vibey self-talk isn't really going to get people where they need to go now. I mean, the truth is part of the problem is self-talk. You know, we're all sort of individuals who need to pull ourselves up from our bootstraps and, you know, no one's going to help you unless you help yourself. But you, those people are really missing the whole point of how interdependent we are and how we're genetically wired to be cooperative and interdependent. And if we're not being cooperative and if we're being self-serving, we're not really being true to our own genetic design and our body is going to rebel. That's absolutely true. I would totally subscribe to that. And um, so does that mean like, let's say in a couple of years, psychedelic therapy needs to be ready to really kind of catch all of these new dispositions that people are in? I mean, I feel really, I mean, to be quite frank, and I did ketamine therapy in 2020 and then another high dose psilocybin in 21 because 
I think that kind of saved me in a way because I needed to go through certain things that came up because of this isolation. So yeah, it's almost like a absolutely. very simple mathematics here. It's not even like very complicated. Yeah, I also have been hearing about healing circles working with clinicians. You know, a lot yeah. of therapists and psychiatrists that I know are just completely swamped. You know, more patients coming in all the time and the people that we already have are needing a higher level of care. And so the caregivers also are being traumatized and need their own, they need to do their own sort of spiritual cleansing and spiritual work, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think just anywhere you look, there's going to be a situation that You know, I'm not going to say it could be remedied by psychedelic assisted therapy, but I am going to say it could at least be ameliorated. That having some time to connect with yourself, to sort of refine your your center and your meaning and your purpose, you know, those things can really help pull you through in a time of crisis to just a better sense of like, who am I? And, you know, what is my goal? What is my purpose? Why am I here? What am I doing? Mm -hmm. You know, finding mm -hmm. finding more meaning. Um, in whatever your path is, and then creating connections in whatever your community is so that you feel sort of held and cared for. Yeah, I think that's um, the search for meaning. I think a lot of people really have started that, right? I mean, there's even this other New York podcast, New York Times podcast, the woman who talks about why she quits her job and how this is a movement, how people don't want to stay in jobs anymore that they actually hate just Yeah. To and, be that. Right. Kind of. And that is that really does come back to also this idea, this bigger idea of rejecting the capitalist narrative that yeah. it's not that's not the only thing. It's not what it's all about is growth at any cost and more money and more work. You know, we really have to question those. You know, it's kind of like what we're soaking in, you know, so it's hard. You have to really kind of pull back. But I'm noticing even in in my private practice in Psycho Farm. Patients are starting to have more conversations with me about, you know, sort of rejecting the patriarchy, rejecting capitalism, rejecting the narratives that we've just taken as gospel for a really long time. And, yeah. and one of the things that psychedelics really do is they help you question the narrative, question authority. You know, why are we doing it this way? Is this the best way to do it? And honestly, I think that's one of the reasons why psychedelics are illegal. You know, they are subversive. They're subversive. Mm -hmm. They Anything that's going to have you question the predominant sort of paradigm is, I guess, by definition, it's subversive. And so that is part of what's happening here and part of what we're fighting against, I think, with criminalization It is mm -hmm. this idea of taking sovereignty and having power over, you know, how we live our lives. And, you know, one of the main messages, I think, of a mystical experience or a psychedelic experience is this idea that everything is connected and everything is interdependent and that there is sort of an illusion of separation, that the separation isn't real, you know, and maybe this illusion of separation is part of the message, sort of the capitalist patriarchal message. And maybe it is a more sort of yin focused message that we're all in this together and that, you know, the only way out is through and the best way out is sort of together, you know, and that we really yeah. need to, Uh, connect to each other and rely on each other and that that's healthy. I mean, in a weird way, like this last two years, I mean, I, I think 95% of the interviews I did obviously online and, and uh, um, remote. And at the same time, I felt that suddenly I was part of a community that I have not been before in that way. So, and that is something that is like 
sometimes yeah. like two very contradictive exactly. elements of this, but you've been there also in, in Miami at the conference and, and New York. So, I mean, the moment I met people there, it was like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my shit. I'm going to get a heart attack to see these people in real life. So yeah. it was well, so know, great. It was so amazing. Kind it of. was great. I went to Miami and, and I went to Horizons. Um, I go to Horizons every yeah. year. It's my absolute, I really yeah, love sure that conference. Yeah. But um. I was hugging everybody as if COVID mm -hmm. didn't exist. And my entire family came away from that with Omicron. Like everybody, oh, good. you know, it turns out, it turns out the timing was actually not good. It was like early December yeah. a lot, and, you know, as much as we were all wearing masks and being really careful, like at the conference, the truth is that we were also going to have coffee and to get some dinner and sure. go get drinks. And, you know, nobody was masked when we didn't have to be. And, but it is a great community. I'm so happy and proud to be part of the psychedelic community. But it is true that we've had to sort of make do and create community um, through Zooms and, you know, online and going to conferences and things like that. And we've all been doing it. I mean, even like business wise, I started working with a couple people and it was only when we got down to Miami that I actually saw yeah. like how tall or short they were because we were just exactly. on Zoom. And <laughs> I was like, damn, something. I mean, like, you know, you should just like sit down and zoom and say like, I'm this tall and I weigh this much just so people like have a sense of like how the rest of your body totally. is. So that was a really weird phenomenon. But um, so if we wanted to advertise your practice, so how long would people have to wait to get an appointment? So first of all, I don't want my practice advertised. I okay. don't make it that easy for people to find me because my practice is full okay. and it has been full for a long time. So Uh, thank you, but no. But, you know, that's one okay. of the reasons why I write these books. You know, like yeah. if you're interested in regular psychopharm stuff, I think Moody Bitches can be very helpful in teaching you about antidepressants, anti-anxiety medicines, mm -hmm. when you need them, why you don't need them. At the back of Moody Bitches is like a huge list of like the meds I do like and the ones I do prescribe because I don't want to like throw the baby out with the bathwater and say there's no good meds. And then good chemistry is all about psychedelic assisted therapy. It's a lot about MDMA. You know, a lot of people read Michael Pollan's book and they learned yeah. about psilocybin or LSD, but they didn't really learn about MDMA no. because yeah, Michael didn't want to include that. But it is definitely in good chemistry. Also, just talking about cannabis and how cannabis fits in, you know, it's sort of like a minor psychedelic, but it does... In my opinion, it really does belong in the family of psychedelics for pharmacologically high dose THC does end up um, tickling the 5-HT2A receptor, which is a psychedelic receptor. And the, the CB1 receptor and the 5-HT2A receptor actually create a receptor coupling called a dimer. So anybody who's had high dose THC will tell you that it feels psychedelic and they're right. Pharmacologically, it does. But there's also this issue of something called dehabituation, which is like a drug that makes something seem new to you. And so you look at it with fresh eyes, right? Psychedelics do this. You know, you could stare at a flower and, you know, you've seen flowers all your life, but then you'll stare at one yeah. for a half hour because you're seeing something new. Cannabis can sort of do that too. It gives you fresh eyes. It dehabituates. Um, but anyway, my, you know, Good Chemistry, Weekends at Bellevue, Moody Bitches, there's also two other books. <laughs> there's one about MDMA called Ecstasy, The Complete Guide. And then there's another one about cannabis called The Pop cannabis, Book. Yeah. If yeah. people go to drholland.com, they can see all the books and get a sense of who I am. But uh, the one thing I would say I don't need is more people coming to my private practice because, oh boy, it's pretty full. 
It's not going to be less, as we already noticed. What is really outstanding, what you do, first of all, you're a very good writer, but it's also the combination, I find, of a very personal, warm attitude mixed with a scientific outlook, which is kind of rare. So most books are either too medical or over-spiritualized Yeah, in that kind of topic that we talk about. So I think that's very attractive. I did really try to walk the line, right? Because no, you did. Yeah. The first thing is you have to communicate in a way that makes it seem like you actually know what you're talking about. and You're not an idiot. Yeah. But then yeah. you don't want to talk over people's heads or you don't want to dumb it down too much. It was really kind of hard to walk that line because I'm kind of a nerd and a wonk and I'm really interested in like the real nuts and bolts of the pharmacology and things like that. So what I did for both Moody bitches and good chemistry is I put about 40 pages of notes where you can see the scientific articles that I pulled from. Everything is online at drholland.com. So if you're a wonk like me and you like to read scientific articles, <laughs> it's funny, my, my husband's a songwriter and he oh. wrote a song once and one line of it was, sometimes she looks at me like through vapor. I think she'd rather read a scientific paper. <laughs> so it's true. Sometimes I would rather... Um, The book doesn't give too much wonky detail, but then if you go online, you can see every scientific article that I read and pulled from. So you see where I arrived. At, you know, yeah. I really tried to simplify and dumb down a little bit how mm -hmm. these things work, why they work, um, and tried to, you know, I am trying to walk a line uh, between being sort of accessible and um, reputable or something. And it's tricky. I appreciate you noticing that. <laughs> no, no. I mean, like Michael Pollan is like the book. He is. But if I can say this, it's also from a very male perspective of things. Right. Well, I mean, that, you know, I like Michael and I like course, Michael's yeah, books. Of course, yeah, no question. But I also, yeah. but it is one of those things where like you're soaking in it. You know, if you're a white male and you've always been a white male, I mean, how could you have any other perspective but the white male perspective? But it's true that one of the few complaints, if you're going to complain about Michael Pollan's book, and I'm not, but if people were <laughs> going to make a complaint, it is this idea like, where are the women? Why aren't the women being spotlighted? And so one of the things that I did in Good Chemistry, I really made a point of finding the women by behind the men, that in any good research protocol, you've got somebody out front who's answering questions and doing the interviews, and then you have eight people behind them doing a lot of the work, right? So I was just trying to find one of the eight, you know, or the woman who's out front. But a lot of times, you know, there are women right behind these men, and I'm not, this isn't saying anything bad about all these men in the space, you know, but there are a lot of white men in the space who are, are sort of the talking heads by default. And it doesn't have to be that way. If you just scratch a little further down, you could interview a woman, you know, or even a woman of color. Oh my gosh. So I really tried to do that as much as I could with good chemistry. Great. It was a great conversation. I knew it would be, but it was even better than <laughs> I thought it would be. Oh, good. <laughs> Julie, it was amazing to have you on the show. As expected, it was super interesting. I mean, of course, we could talk for hours, but uh, you have a busy schedule ahead because it's just noon. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club show. And please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or If you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. 
Clubhouse, of course, there's also a new health club now. Or even better, sign up to a newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 